Hey friends, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today. I have Nick Quint, um, also known as the New Testament theologist. Nick, what's up, man? How you doing? Not much, brother. Doing good. God is good. What's up with you? Uh, just the same, plowing through life. Um, grateful for another day to be alive. So yeah. Um, so today we're gonna be talking about like the New Testament and like just like how to think about the New Testament because um, I think it's a like very pivotal question. So Nick, uh, you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do and what get you interested in topics like this? Yeah, I, I was a pastor for about three and a half, four years, uh, full-time ministry, uh, currently a PhD candidate in New Testament, uh, master's degree in New Testament. Uh, got into it because I love studying Paul. And basically, once you study Paul, uh, it's not like studying John or, or Hebrews. Uh, with Paul, you basically, once you jump in, you discover that the scholarly pool is basically filled with sharks and landmines and Soviet-era uh, submarines that are all trying to kill you. And so it's one of those things, no matter where you go, where you swim, there's always something trying to bite you shoot at you and so that's being in Pauline studies is a lot of fun a lot of a lot of combat we might say everyone's fighting about everything in paul not so much mm-hmm. in john or or in, in hebrews or anything like that i'm not saying they don't fight but if you want to fight paul's the place you go and fight and so once i discovered paul and fell into that i'm just like well paul this is this is fun let's let's do theology <laughs> and that's kind of what prompted my interest so what like what are the debates like in like the pauline life like in all these like fun scholarly debates you have on Paul. Like what's the sample of like the lay of the land with like the conflicts going on right now? I mean, one of the big ones is what school you kind of find yourself, right? The kind of the, the school of thought, you know, how people read Paul. So you've got kind of the, the old school kind of Lutheran Paul, you know, kind of the reformed ish Augustinian ish kind of Lutheran ish Paul who saw, you know, salvation as something that's, uh, is basically built on the, uh, the judge and the, and the, uh, the person being judged, you know, the, the, all that sort of stuff. And you've got the idea also of kind of the individual and her standing before God versus kind of the corporate body versus all these other things. Then you had what's called the new perspective on Paul, which was big in the seventies, eighties and nineties. And aside from maybe a few holdouts in the Lutheran Paul camp, uh, the new perspective is kind of the the dominant view in New Testament studies insofar as everyone agrees with the questions they were asking, because the new perspective on Paul basically said, in order to understand uh, Paul, you need to not think about 15th and 16th century debates about Roman Catholicism. You need to go back to the first century and see what Paul was arguing like as a Jew. And so uh, they asked the right questions and most often than not, their answers were considered inadequate or imprecise or whatever. Um, but they were asking the right questions about getting Paul back in the first century. And that's people like N.T. Wright, J, uh, the late Jimmy Dunn and others. And then you have the uh, Paul within Judaism school, which kind of shunts a lot of the questions about, say, Christ- creedal Christianity or kind of later categories of Christian thought. And locates Paul squarely in Judaism as a Jew and all this sort of stuff. And and they're kind of correct, but they're, I think it's the I think the movement's a little more excessive. But I get I get the point. And then there's the big one, the apocalyptic Paul, which basically uh, has Paul thinking about uh, the epist- basically it's a debate on Paul's epistemology. How did Paul conceive of the world? And how does that Christology and that pneumatology, all that stuff kind of work? And it's often categorized as seeing Christ as the one who invades a hostile cosmos, say like uh, D-Day or the invasion of Normandy, you know, in World War II, kind of Christ is the tip of the spear uh, driving back into the hostile world. And you get that from say the gospel of John, you know, light and darkness and those sort of cosmological kind of issues and stuff. Um, so those are kind of the four pe- four, uh, the four schools of thought, generally speaking, that are fighting. You have fights about justification. Uh, you have fights now about whether or not Paul uh, should be seen as a covenantal or a contractual theologian and the differences between those. You have questions about uh, the extent of participation and human agency in, in kind of all of that. You have issues of 
uh, divine violence in Paul, uh, those sorts of questions. How does God act? You know, and it's, it's a lot of really interesting stuff, but you know, you, as you can see, you tweak one thing in Christology, then you run it, have to think about, well, how does this work with pneumatology and eschatology? And should we even be using the phrase eschatology? Cause is Paulo, you know, and so it gets into all sorts of questions that analytic theologians and philosophers love that new Testament scholars are slowly beginning to think about, which is really quite cool. Yeah, it's super cool how all these things like kind of like intersect and you think about like philosophy and theology and analytic, all that stuff. Like it's just fun right. to see how it all kind of comes together. And like as Christians, like it should come together if we have like a holistic like worldview of thinking about the world. Mm -hmm. um, but for today, we're talking about like the New Testament and things like this and like trying to understand just at like a surface level, at least like what is the New Testament? So if someone asked you, Nick, um, your channel is the New Testament theologist, so you better have an answer. Um, what is the New Testament? W what would you say? Uh, it is... Uh... It is a collection of 27 first century documents, uh, usually built upon the assumption that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, and they are in uh, a testament to that reality. And so they are historical theological documents centered around either the activity of someone, the life of someone, or the implications of all those things by someone. And so uh, you could say, you could, it's very easy to say it's all about Jesus, but it's a very trite thing to say. But in some sense, it's true. that. But then the question becomes, uh, say Hebrews views Jesus as high priest versus, say, Paul, who has a much more new or much different view of who Jesus, or what Jesus does. And the issue is, are they contradictory or are they coherent? Meaning, are they disparate pieces that are meant to be viewed in isolation or are they meant to be viewed in some sense as interlocking or, as you would say, a... Um, a, uh, a diamond. You look at a diamond a certain way in the light, you twist it, you see something different. And so uh, that's kind of one of the other issues in Pauline theology is how much interplay do you have between those? And so that's how I view the, I think the New Testament is basically as a collection of historical documents that make theological claims about the God of Israel and what the God of Israel did in Jesus Christ. And now how the people of God in light of that act in the first century. Mm. It's super helpful thinking about like what the New Testament is. Uh, one thing that is often like brought up in these debates is like where does it come from? Because um, mm. you know, like a lot of times, like I didn't think about this a lot like growing up. But we have these like twenty-seven books that are in the New Testament. And, you know, you have all those other books that mm -hmm. um, maybe aren't, and we're not going to get into like you know like what is and what isn't like should be in the New Testament. Like, how do we get this? How do we get to the point where like we open our Bibles as like Protestants or even like Catholics would have the same canon as us with regards to the New Testament? Um, and having these 27 books, like where does this come from in terms of thinking about like the origins of um, how we got all these books put together? Because they weren't originally put together when the New Testament was being like penned down and written. Right. So the New Testament is a word that we use to describe what has come to be the collection. Um, you could, I mean, it's not anachronistic, but it's more precise to say these documents would become the New Testament. It's not as if Paul is sitting there thinking I'm pending the New Testament or whoever the hell wrote Hebrews is thinking I'm pending the New Testament. But later on, we basically, these are documents that are valuable, that uh, have a coherency that fit within kind of the apostolic scheme of succession. You know, these people making uh, claims, we can kind of trace all that back. Uh, you have uh, kind of witnesses to all of that. And so how it came about was essentially, and this is a 30,000 foot view. There's been a lot of really good books on this. Um, one that's really helpful, that's technical, but shockingly readable was uh, a book by Stanley Porter. And I'm trying to remember off the top of my head what it is called. If you're cool with me Googling right now, I can go actually ahead, go. Stanley Porter. I think it was text transmission and the text or something like that. Uh, give me, it's with, uh, I know it's with Baker Academic, I believe. Give me one second. Oh, mm -hmm. that's, oh, duh. How we got the New Testament. Uh, let's see. Text, transmission, and translation. And that was uh, 
the that yeah it's baker academic press and that was about six years ago but it's a it's a very helpful book because he looks at the manuscript data where these uh pieces come from and so what you get into this is so uh let's say you have what's called paul writes paul writes uh philemon and philemon gets preserved and held onto perhaps by onesimus you know and that's kind of his document that he carries with him and it gets recopied and recopied and uh then you have uh uh, what are called canon lists uh, that emerge in the second, third centuries about the uh, what we would call the um, well, basically their canon lists, the, the the documents that we have that would later be the New Testament, and a lot of them are really early. And so you have Romans, you have Hebrews. Sometimes Hebrews is put within the Pauline letters. I think in one of them, one of the documents, uh, one of the canon lists, which is interesting. Uh, Marcion's canon, one of the early ones, has lots of different stuff in there. And so you can kind of compare and contrast these early canon lists from early church fathers um, and fragmentary papyri and stuff like that. But essentially you have very early on a sense in which you have the preservation of these documents or fragments, or we'll say letters. You have a, a sense mm -hmm. of all these letters are kind of kept and you might say collated and cherished and then re recopied. And so uh, and that actually is helpful because then you look at textual variants, you know, differences between manuscripts or papyri and you can go, oh, well, these these all kind of speak to one another and you can kind of get to the, the the original text, so to speak, by compare and contrast. You know, how early is this? Well, if this early one challenges later readings, then we go with the earliest reading, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we got the New Testament. Essentially, Paul wrote Philemon. Philemon was cherished and carried on, perhaps by Onesimus. Uh, church history seems to suggest he became a bishop later. It's possible. It's a bit of fanciful, but it's not implausible or anything. Um, and then that gets carried and cherished and kind of disseminated. And kind of mm -hmm. goes on and then people later uh get copies of that uh probably from that line of succession or we would say the genealogy is a good word for it and then you have these things that are kind of put together and eventually they end up being what we would call the new testament and so that's a very streamlined thirty thousand foot view but just kind of how it works or it worked and that's very generic and very general but that's kind of the idea mm -hmm. yeah that's super helpful so thanks nick um maybe one thing to kind of like look at this further is thinking about like um, like growing up for me, like my always, like the way I kind of saw things was like, you had like, maybe like you put the new Testament and like this, like say glass box, um, here's your 27 books. And like, this is like the inspired infallible inerrant word of God, da, 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 da. and then mm -hmm. everything outside of that box, like, man, I don't know what's going on here. We might not trust it. This might be crazy. Don't trust anything it says. Um, mm -hmm. do you think those dis distinctions would be helpful when looking at the new Testament or like, would you something, see something like a little bit different in terms of thinking of like, um, the idea of like the authority, maybe not the authority, but like the idea of like. What does it mean to really say the New Testament is like God's word and things like that? So, so maybe the question is, uh, how do we see these disparate historical documents theologically with as inspired by God? Is that kind of what you're getting seeing at? Seeing them as like theologically like united documents, um, especially in like light of thinking about them not as like written like in like one after the other, like boom, 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 right. like edited book of the New Testament is like what the original authors were thinking. Yeah. Uh, and one of the key things is partially just reading them. Uh, reading them with uh, a care and a curiosity and a critical eye. I think all three of those are very necessary for reading the New Testament. Um, one of the things you notice in reading them is that uh, while Jesus is depicted in different ways, so like I said, uh, Hebrews has him as high priest, as kind of the ultimate or penultimate sacrifice, so to speak. Um, Paul, uh, Paul tends to view Jesus as the last Adam and how that functions Christologically. So Jesus kind of functions that way. But Jesus also is engaged with the law. He's engaged as, you know, uh, as one who kind of interacts with that. Um, he's also the place in, say, Romans 3, where 
um, cultic sacrifices are made. You know, um, he's presented as, as the mercy seat, which has, of course, cultic imagery that you can look at Hebrews and go, okay, there's there's coherence to how they kind of conceptualize Jesus. There's overlapping metaphors and paradigms and, and images that are applied to Jesus. Uh, one of them is Lord, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, Christ being a curios, you know, uh, figure like that. And so that's that occurs throughout the New Testament as well. Um, then you look at personification of Jesus, say uh, lamb or lamb slain, uh, which is, of course, Revelation and John uh, John's gospel, which I take to be probably separate authors, but certainly coherent with how they depict Jesus. Um, mm -hmm. And so you begin to see how Mark portrays Jesus as um, as the one who uh, inaugurates Jesus or rather the, the story of Israel, how Matthew has kind of a, a more uh you wouldn't say Jewish, but that's probably the right way of saying it. A, a more Jewish center, a more he has more of an eye towards Judaism than say a separatist view or anti-Semitic view. Uh, Luke has much more emphasis on the poor and and women. Uh, Jesus, you would call an inaugurated eschatology, the kingdom now kind of thing. And so all of these are testaments, and to, to be pun to use a pun, but they're all testaments to the one central figure. And they the goal is to and uh, they portray him in unique and different ways. Um, and we run a real uh, disservice when we flatten it all out. When we go, nope, Jesus has to be this way in every single book or every single letter or, or epistle or apocalypse. Whereas if we allow the New Testament to speak and inform one another, you can see that Paul is very conversant with Hebrews. Uh, Mark is actually very conversant with uh, Revelation because they both have a very similar view of the Old Testament, at least in some sense, and how they deployed certain texts and images. Uh, and so on and so forth. And so if you begin to kind of step out and go, okay, how do these speak to one another? You begin to sense theologically and historically, there's a lot more commonality than than uh, divergence. And so um, thinking theologically about inspiration, that tells us that uh, God wasn't interested in giving us a one-size-fits-all Jesus. Uh, God was uh, intentional about Jesus, a Jesus uh, the central figure, Jesus Christ, being portrayed in numerous ways for specific people at specific times. And so if you're preaching through Paul or Romans, for example, um, that'll hit differently in, say, a mixed congregation than it will, say, uh, Ephesians. Ephesians uh, is, has assumed that uh, racial and ethnic divisions are undone in Christ, that it's a rea new reality. It's inaugurated. It's present. It's apocalyptic. It's boom. It's done. Um, Romans is much more about the tension of living between Jew and Gentile in this new community, this new body of Christ. And mm -hmm. so you can see just this kind of... Uh, you can see the New Testament working itself out with its kind of unique theological vision. And what I think is so powerful about it is, um, yes, there are differences in how the authors think about Jesus, but they do not present Jesus as hopelessly contradictory in their portrayal of Jesus. So historically and theologically, I see them as being very um, united in, in kind of the big sphere of Jesus while allowing for differences of, of emphases uh, in kind of the smaller details. So I don't know if that quite answers your question, but that's kind of the idea of what I see going on. Yeah, I think that's helpful. And I think it's helpful because it reveals like the human aspect of like the writers of the New Testament. Like obviously as Christians, we say that like this is like God's word inspired by God, but also right. like seeing like the little differences in like maybe like the book of Romans and like its intent and Ephesians and its intent, maybe like John or Revelation and, and its intent. Um, really help to reveal like there's like these, these are human beings writing these books. Obviously they're right. inspired by God and we don't want to like deny that. Um, but like you can see like Paul's thinking a little bit differently with writing Romans than he is like when he's writing Ephesians. Um, and I think it's something right. really we miss sometimes, but it's super valuable is like not like denying like that human aspect of things when thinking about like the origins of the New Testament and the Bible as a whole. Right. And also not um, sugarcoating the real problems in the first century between say Jew and Gentile. Um, I mean, Romans, that was a, a, 
or, or Galatians, that was a bitter fight that Paul had to fight and not Paul didn't always do it rightly. I mean, he flat out says sometimes he didn't do it right. You know, um, with mm-hmm. Romans, he's having to wrestle with how does, and in my Roman series, I, I hit on this a lot as Paul trying to really understand um, the place of Israel within God's story. How are, are the people of Israel, how do they fit into this new thing now that the Gentiles are being included in droves? The Gentiles are coming to Israel's God, to Yahweh. And then the question becomes, uh, I can't go on mission trips, for lack of a better word. I can't go to Spain and proclaim mm-hmm. that this God um, uh, has no uh, partial, shows no partiality between Jew and Gentile. If I go and then say uh, to them, yes, uh, this God is not faithful to the original covenant. This God is not faithful to Israel, but he's faithful to the new people, which kind of casts God as both partial and fickle, not worthy of trust. God is not faithful. And so then... Mm-hmm. Paul has to really wrestle with how does this all work out? And that's the big debate in Romans 9 through 11. It's not about sovereignty or election or all these other things. It's about God or Paul trying to untangle the history of Israel with what is happening now. And so there is that that present reality, that present appearance of of tension. And it is a tension that doesn't doesn't get fully resolved yet. Paul basically pivots to mystery and God's ultimate faithfulness to Israel and Gentiles. But I think for, for Paul and other writers, you have to take what happens in Christ as an event that shocked them so much that they had to basically rethink everything. It's kind of like the image of the the foundation of the home is there, but all the furniture, all the building plan has been completely taken up and shaken and put back down. It's like, this mm-hmm. is, we're still standing on this new foundation of Israel's story, Israel's scriptures, our own history as the people of God, and the new welcoming of, of Gentiles into that kind of incorporated household but everything looks different. We have the spirit now in a way we didn't understand. We didn't. We weren't looking for Jesus in this same way. We're expecting this, but we got this. And so the problem is not um, that Jesus was all this or that. It was the human expectation of Jesus within these historical realities. And that's a that's something I think we often kind of miss. And we it, it's sexy to kind of go, oh, Jesus did something so radical. He basically threw Judaism out. He for, he threw the Old Testament out. And it's like, well, no, he came here because of God's faithfulness to Israel's story. And just along the way, he decided to bring in. Well, I'm, I'm not Jewish. I'm Irish. But to bring in Gentiles like me and you and uh, and everyone else. You know what I mean? So. It's one of those things that the vision of God was always there from the beginning. You know, we go back to Genesis. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the big story. And so I think a big issue is just having a, a bigger view of kind of the story of the New Testament that doesn't diminish the dif- the, uh, the the diversity of perspectives within it. And so that's kind of how I see it. Mm, that's super helpful. And I like the idea of like, like depending on like looking at the diversity, but also seeing like the unity and like looking at like um, like Paul and these different letters, like the different authors of like the different parts of like the gospels and other like epistles, like they're, they're united in Christ. Like they see this resurrection, this big event and um, maybe like the minor thing, not in saying this contradiction, but like they, they see it a little bit differently. Um, and maybe like they're emphasizing different points, but they're united on this, like this main event of Christ and his resurrection. I think that's something really beautiful and helpful. Like even in like our own conflicts, I remember like as Christians, like hmm. we may disagree with like our brothers and sisters on certain topics, but like we have that unity of like knowing Christ and knowing the power of like the right. resurrection of Jesus. Well, and it's like if someone were to be, let's write a let's write a biopic on uh, on Zach's life. Okay, let's say and it happens in ten years. So you get married, you have a kid, you know, you move around, you go this and that. You're teaching somewhere, then you get fired, then you go and teach somewhere else, and all these life experiences. Um, and it happens over the say a three years a three year span. So you get married, you have a kid, you move, you get fired, you have a new job. Yeah, you know, and all that happens. Um, no one is going to go. Okay, let's tell Zach's story from birth till this point and go. And they're not. No one's going to tell it the same way. 
because there are certain things that people will notice, like, you know, your aunt who you've met five times is going to write a much different biopic than your mother or your father or your grandmother or your brother. And it's one of those words like you don't expect conformity. You expect uniformity. And I think with the story of Jesus saying the synoptic gospels, even with John and even with Paul, you do get a sense of there's uh, uniformity, not conformity, because if there's conformity, they, they wouldn't have told their story to begin with. You know what I mean? It's like, mm -hmm. why would we tell the same story? That, that's the problem with the Dia Tesseron, right? Let's take these four gospels, sand it all off and smash it all together to make one gospel. It's like, no, that's that defeats the entire purpose mm -hmm. of the gospel itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, maybe at this point, Nick, talk about like maybe like we can talk about the different kinds of books in the New Testament. Um, so like sort of like some of like the main genres and themes when looking at like these twenty-seven books that make up our New Testament. Yeah, so you've got what's called the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they are uh, basically what you call. And I think like Mike Lycona is probably right, although I'm not sure how far I would. Go, I would go as far as him, but essentially they're historical, they're historiography, they're, they're ancient biographies, uh, and they are uh, written in the sense of how a first century author would write them. They're not writing like Stephen King or whoever writes history these days. They're not writing like Howard Zinn or whoever. And so, but they are intended to be uh, historical documents that are making theological points, but because the entire subject is theological. It's like you can't talk about Jesus without doing theology. That's just how it goes. Um, then you have uh, the other gospel, uh, the gospel of John, which is probably, so if we go chronologically, right? Everything Paul wrote, Paul, Paul probably wrote before 65 AD or CE, however you want to say it. Um, everything else after that in the New Testament was probably written between 70 and 90, maybe 95 if you push Revelation as far back as possible. But I, I think you could say everything in the New Testament was penned uh, before 100. So within 70, 60, 70 years of Jesus's death, which is a long time, but not a long time. Um, mm -hmm. and so what you have there is Paul. So you have the gospels that are probably written between say, I'd say 70 and 90, John, probably at the tail end, Mark, probably at, at the beginning of that. And so you have these gospels that historically and theologically tell the story of Jesus. And with John, John is more blatant about his theology, but he's no less, I think, historically interested, uh, in making historical points. But John's point, as Origen said, is to tell a spiritual gospel. He's he's overt about his theology. He's intentionally being theological and philosophical about Jesus because he's like, you already have the historical stuff. Let me tell you the meaning of why this history matters. What is the significance of this historical stuff? And then you've got uh, the Catholic epistles, you know, the, the um, you know, James you've got, which is kind of wisdom literature, so to speak. Uh, you have Hebrews, which is an extended, what's called an extended homily, but it's highly technical. It's probably the hardest Greek in the New Testament. Uh, you have the epistles of John, which are written to churches. You have the book of Revelation, which is an apocalypse uh, within the, the apocalyptic uh, kind of reality of uh, cosmological dualism, personification of creatures, symbolic meaning and, and these principalities and powers and kind of this. Uh, it's, very, it's the most cinematic book of the Bible, and it's probably the only apocalypse we have in the New Testament outside of what's called mini apocalypses in the synoptic gospels, where Jesus kind of goes on an extended apocalyptic kind of discourse, but it's not itself mm -hmm. literature apocalyptic. And then uh, I think I've got everything. Then it's Paul. Paul's epistles are written to specific churches, um, sometimes specific churches, say in Rome or Corinth. But more, more likely than not, Ephesians is probably the only circular letter that Paul wrote, meaning it didn't have a direct address. It was meant to be circulated amongst a certain geographic region. Are you getting pulled over, dude? No, there's something <laughs> to happen outside. I live near like kind of a main street, so there's Oh, gotcha. No, it's all good. Yeah, I was giving you a time. Maybe the SWAT team will like walk down my house and stuff. But oh, yeah, gotcha. Okay. Uh, 
but yeah, so you have basically everything is written either to a community or to select churches. Um, John's called the universal gospel for a reason because it's meant to be read and seen universally. Um, and so those that's kind of how the New Testament kind of broadly is with the different types of literature. Um, there's some issue and debate about the pseudepigraphy that is um, often called forgeries, but probably false writings, meaning the person uh, that penned it uh, claims Paul, for example, as the author when Paul didn't write it. Um, I'm, I'm not convinced by that per se. I think there's healthy debate about, say, the pastoral epistles not being Pauline. I'm willing to have that conversation. Um, I think it's more likely than not that Paul wrote everything that's attributed to him, even if he didn't himself officially pen everything, because that's not usually how it worked anyway. Um, and so then you have other literature. The Gospels don't claim a specific author. They don't make claims of that. You know, I, John, am writing to you from my desk in Alexandria or wherever. And so that's kind of the broad kind of bit of literature, the literature review of the New Testament. Um, epistles are generally um, personalized. Gospels tend to be more kind of 30,000 foot view that don't try to miss the forest for the trees. Apocalypse basically set the trees on fire and go, ooh, pretty, and here's the symbolic meaning of this. And then uh, the Catholic epistles and all that tend to have a more homiletical edge, more of a pastoral kind of function. That's kind of generally speaking. I'm sure I missed one in there, but that's kind of, and James is the same way. It's, it's an extended kind of ethical bit of wisdom literature with a bit of pastoral or homiletical function. So one of the important things I think to look at, and we've been at this a little bit, Nick, is like the idea of like, how do we see the New Testament as like inspired by God? Um, mm -hmm. So like, you know, you have the different things. Like I was always taught about like the things of like inerrancy, inspiration, um, infallibility, things like this. Um, but, like when you look at like saying like the New Testament is like a God-breathed document, um, it's God-inspired. Like what does that mean to you when thinking about like um, God's purpose behind these documents that we look at? Hmm. No, it's, it's a really good question. Um, I, I think of inspiration as as this God intended to give us the Bible in the way God intended to give us the Bible. Meaning we got the Bible God wanted to give us. Uh, God didn't uh, drop it out of heaven. Boom. Like, you know, here you go. It's like you said, glass case, boom, indestructible. It's all right here. It's perfect. Uh, God seems to really like history because God seems to get his nose and fingernails dirty every time he engages with us. And so I think uh, for it to be inspired, what you have are, two things. One, you have the inspiration of the spirit is kind of the, the sovereign kind of hand over all of it, not literally penning like a hand, but kind of overseeing everything um, and all of that. But then you have the, the human element of people writing within a specific context about specific situations that attest coherently to what God has done in Christ. And so you have both the divine hand, we would say, the, the divine eye kind of overseeing it. It's a silly, that doesn't really work, but you know what I mean? Kind of what God desired. Uh, and if we think about too, if God is involved in history and God desires to make God's self known in revelation through nat whether it's natural or supernatural or visionary, um, uh, God basically invaded our cosmos, put his stamp on it and said, I'm here. And that act, that incarnational act, is attested by people who experienced the incarnate and resurrected Christ. And mm -hmm. that is how God, I think, inspired it because God made uh, self, what God was acting in divine self-disclosure towards humankind. And in that sense, you have both the supernatural and the natural way of understanding history as it being as it is written down perfectly united because you have the divine self-disclosure in Christ, the, you know, uh, Colossians and one and two make that point. The gospel of John, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and, or made his home among us. And so you get this idea of kind of 
God inspiring the events that happened by participating in human history, by making himself known so that we would have an object of faith to look at and understand and ultimately worship. And so it doesn't mean we were given perfect knowledge because I think, I don't think God wanted us to have perfect knowledge. I think God wanted us to have sufficient and intelligible knowledge that would drive us further into say spiritual reflection. And I say this as a Christian, uh, I'm not making a claim that, um, uh, uh, neutral on this point. I'm, I'm a committed Christian. I believe that scripture is inspired. And so anyone who disagrees with me on that, that's cool. Like I get it. You know, Bart Ehrman, brilliant scholars disagree with, you know, Christians on this point. That's completely fine. We can have those debates, but just for me as a Christian to know that God invaded human history as God seems to do quite often and gave us events that are attested across scholarly liter or rather ancient literature um, is I think a testament one to the trustworthiness of God, that God acts in human history, but that God is good. God wanted us to be a part of human history or well, God wants us to be a part of God's story, so to speak. And so that's how I see uh, inspiration functioning. I see inspiration as given by God in history for our benefit, for our salvation and for his glory. Mm, that's super helpful, Nick. I really appreciate um, kind of laying that out. And I do think there's a lot of helpful like um, tidbits and kind of thinking about like the idea of like, um, there is a lot of messy details and like debates and things like you're talking like in the beginning about all the debates like within Paul. Um, mm -hmm. But also it seems like like reading the New Testament, you can get a very clear picture of like the really like core things of like um, the gospel and like the resurrection. Obviously, there's many people mm -hmm. that disagree. But, like it seems like like regardless of across most denominations, like like Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, Baptist, like whatever, um, there are like agreement on things like the death and resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ, um, the idea mm -hmm. of like God being triune, the incarnation. And obviously mm -hmm. there's some that disagree, but for the most part, it seems like like across Christendom, there's pretty wide agreement on some of these like really core fundamental things that we would say are right. like core teachings of the New Testament. So I think that's helpful mm -hmm. um, when looking at like all these like different debates we may have. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's very helpful. That's a good point. Um, I think God is is very um, very happy to uh, I use this phrase. God is very happy to get his fingernails dirty because that's how that's how God acts. I mean, what does creation tell us? You know, uh, God uh, create when he created Adam, he created him from the dust or the dirt of the ground. God got his fingernails dirty. God is not um, averse to um, empowering humankind towards further learning, further advancement, and further uh, glory. So um, theologically, I, I think it's quite powerful personally. Mm, that's super helpful. Um, maybe one last question, Nick, to look at um, for the sake of this conversation. And that's the idea of like, what is the purpose of the New Testament? Um, so we think about like these different books and like what God's given us. And like, obviously, like we're Christians 2000 years later after the resurrection. Um, like, what do we do with these documents? Like, what do we make? How do we make sense of them and like use them in like our day to day life um, and understanding like God and things like this? Hmm. Uh, you, you can't. Uh... You, you can't, if you're, I'm speaking as a Christian, so I'm speaking as a Christian to Christians. One of the things I, I say is um, without reading and prayer, you're, you're not going to get anything out of these. You might find some interesting historical bits, you know, kind of, oh, that was an interesting little tidbit of history. You know, oh, Josephus said that. Okay, that's interesting. We can find that over here in this gospel, you know, kind of thing. But I think at the end of the day, specifically with, say, the gospel of John and, say, Paul's letters, but even the book of Revelation, all these other, other bits of literature, disparate literature, there is a very strong sense of, of community uh, formation, of spiritual discipleship, of transformation. Uh, David De Silva, a, a Methodist uh, New Testament scholar, pushes this idea a lot, and I think he's absolutely right, is the New Testament documents um, are historical, but they have a theological point about tr the transformative power of grace in Christ. And mm. the transformation of the human person within community, within the body of Christ, is central to it. Whether they are dealing with issues of, say, uh, racial or ethnic tension, say Romans 9 um, through 11, or um, 
or persecution and say that in Thessalonians or in Rome, uh, not in Romans in revelation or issues of sexual purity and intercommunity infighting Galatians or, or the epistles to John, they're all centered on the idea of transformational power of Jesus Christ, the new way of doing things, the new, uh, the, we would say the mind of Christ having that same spirit in the Colossians and the Philippians hymn, right? Uh, though being in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be kind of exploited for his own gain, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. And, but before we have that magnificent little bit, we have, have this same mindset that was also in Christ Jesus. And so I think, uh, central to the claims of the New Testament are the ethical outworkings of this theology and history. Without the historical reality, without the theological uh, arguments, um, they're not meant to be just head knowledge. It's not propositionalism. It is a way of life. And it's, it's living in the experience of Christ with the Spirit. And so I think the New Testament is meant to be feasted on, it's meant to be reflected on, it's meant to be challenged in the sense of, you know, is that true? How does this work? What about this here? What about that there? And um, uh, and it's designed to help us kind of go deeper into Christ and deeper into understanding scripture. And I think that can only happen through prayer um, and, I, and reading. It, it, you have to actually read the New Testament. But um, as I've gone through uh, the past four months or so of dealing with you know job loss, and you and I have talked about that, job loss and all the other stuff that goes along with that. Um, one of the things I, I think we miss a lot is spending time in prayer and mm -hmm. reflecting on portions of scripture that um, are powerful, are meant to kind of transform us. Um, and so I, I think we can't miss uh, miss out on the transformational coherence of the New Testament, but also the life of prayer that should provoke us into deeper understanding of what is written in the New Testament. I think it's super helpful, Nick, um, thinking about the idea of like loving God with all of our heart, mind, mm -hmm. soul, and strength. Like we think about this, right. like oftentimes you're really good at like one of them. Like maybe some days like you're really good at like the heart part or one day sure. maybe the soul start or the mind part or strength. I think there's only three and I'm making it into four. Um, so yeah, I think there's three or four. I can't remember. You you know more than I, I don't know. know that. Exactly. See, yeah, the so. mind part isn't my thing today, I guess. Um, but like, <laughs> as Christians, like we should be unified and thinking about um, like as all these things are super important. Like we should be hmm. like looking at like theology and philosophy and all these things. But if we yeah. do all that and then we don't have like that devotional prayer st structure, we're really missing out. Um, this is thing <laughs> I've learned really recently in my own life is like. I need that personal, like private, like devotional structure to my life. Um, mm. because without it, like I'm missing out on something. And there's something mm. more like when we have that like experiential, like act, act through like prayer, um, reading the Bible for like devotional purposes. Yeah. And, and, and we can't miss out on the nature of the church, right? The, the community of faith, the body of Christ. Um, I mean, COVID did a, a number on everyone, did a number on community gatherings in person, all that sort of stuff. Um, I think we were never meant to be isolated creatures. And so I think, um, prayer, transformation, the reading of scripture, participation together uh, is vital. And so finding a community of faith, community of family um, helps us kind of get past the, the, the reading this as dry history. You can read it as dry history and it's incredibly powerful and it's incredibly rewarding and it's wonderful to do so. Uh, for me though, it's history, but it's not only history. And that's why mm -hmm. prayer and the church and friendship and family in Christ are so important. That's great. That communal aspect is so, so important, Nick. And I'm really glad that, really glad that you brought that up. Um, it's definitely important to think about. Um, so anything else you want to say here? We'll do a couple questions related to the New Testament. We won't get through everything. Um, anything else you want to say before we get into just a tiny bit of like Q&A to wrap things up? No, it's just uh, I'm glad to be here. Glad to be back on with you. It's been too long. Uh, but yeah, uh, I, I think uh, I, I think missing out on the formational aspect of the New Testament is um, mm. 
it's at the detriment of the church's like spirituality and health, um, especially as it relates to mental health and issues of isolation. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think that's something we we can't ignore. I think I'd really like to emphasize that because it's super important to have that like communal um, aspect to like Christianity. Because if you're not living it in like community, whew, you're missing out. So, yep. and I'm not like saying, oh, I got this all figured out because I definitely don't. Um, but it's super important. So I just want to emphasize that. And as I think about it for myself as well. So, yeah. Um, a couple questions here that we'll look at before we wrap up, Nick. Um, sure. One from Swift City says, um, New Testament often says the time is short, these last days, the age is passing, da da da. Um, common theme throughout the New Testament, Nick. So, like, what would you say, like, regards to like passages like this? Uh, there, there are a few of them. Well, few. I mean, there, there are several. Um, one of the things, and this is an issue with uh, if it's in, uh, I'm, I'm trying to be careful with how I say this. There are most of the time, these set phrases or idioms are designed to communicate the urgency of transformation now. So basically, don't wait. The, uh, the parousia or the coming of Christ is imminent and eminent, meaning it is present and it's kind of, you need to be prepared for it. Um, I don't think it's meant to communicate time in the sense of we think of time. I think it's meant to communicate kind of, to put it pithily, eschatology now, meaning the inbreaking is happening and you need to be uh, ready. You need to be on guard. You need to be uh, present and aware of what's going on in the world. Um, meaning um, getting your ethical house in order, um, making sure you are um, uh, taking care of your household and your sins and all these sorts of things. So I don't think it's functioning exclusively about time as if Jesus is coming back within five minutes. Um, I think rather it's to, to live your lives in accordance with uh, not putting off your transformation uh, tomorrow for what you can do today. So that's in a very loose, broad brush kind of way of saying it. I think those are what that idiom is kind of attempting to communicate. It's kind of like you won't always have Jesus in the flesh in the gospels. So take, take heed now, be aware now, listen now, um, be present and aware of what is going on because you're going to have to remember this and you're going to have to reflect on this when Jesus is gone. Mm, super helpful. Thanks, Nick. Um, another question from Slam RN, which says, what do you think about the uses of the DK? Did I say that right? Did okay. Oh, it's wonderful. Okay. It's uh, kind of a, uh, Origen wrote the first actual systematic theology, although we wouldn't call it systematic theology, although it kind of was. Uh, the Didache is kind of the first uh, ecclesial theology. Kind of here is kind of what the church says. Um, Didache is remarkably useful. Um, it's not inspired in the way the New Testament authors are, were inspired, but it is, it's like reading the Apocrypha, the Pseudepocrypha, Jewish writings and stuff like that. Um, if you want to understand the development and reception of the New Testament, the Didache is a, an amazing place to start. Um, same with uh Enoch or, or other, other, uh, pseudepigraphal texts or pseudo or from the pseudepigrapha or the apocrypha, um, to understand the context and the world of the new Testament, you need to read beyond the new Testament because you'll see lots of commonalities and lots of divergences. Um, you'll have people that think the, the messianic figure is a pure, um, uh, political figure, for example. Um, you'll see other stuff about, uh, there's no resurrection from the dead unless you are, uh, in, in Christ or not in Christ, you are, you're Jewish, you know, you're faith, a faithful Jew. Other, everyone else doesn't even get raised from the dead. And so you have differences of opinion uh, within the, the, the historical reality of the new Testament. And the Didache is a really good document that shows us how these documents were received and interpreted and understood within the first or second generation of the church. So in terms of under, helping us understand the new Testament, uh, helpful, not itself, the new Testament, but I think essential to understanding the new Testament. Mm. 
That's great. Um, I'm scared to put this question up here, but I feel like it's a fitting place to have you on since you're here. Um, for Nick, what did the early ch- church think of egalitarianism? I know this is kind of like one of your main things. Um, were they okay <laughs> with women being church leaders? Um, since I know that you have like a whole podcast this and things like this, it's mm-hmm. like a fitting like last question. So like, what are your thoughts sure. on Nick? Um, and I know Zach, Zach's giving me a softball here. Um, my goal is to do a, 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 as long a series as needed on YouTube where I dissect all the passages, all the words and basically writes, make stuff that's so boring. Only five people will watch it. Um, it's hard to say, um, what did the early church think of egalitarianism or the idea that women, uh, being church leaders or, or participating fully in the life of the church. Um, and Paul, with the exception of one or two passages, you don't see any real issue. In fact, um, the few issues that he did uh, that do crop up, you do have a, a very strong sense that these are contextual points, meaning heresy being promulgated, disruption being promulgated. So they they represent kind of Paul's uh, response to kind of bad bad acting, bad bad activity or activity he thinks is negative. But if you have women named as apostles, uh, deacons, leaders, co-workers alongside Paul, uh, you see women named for the cause of Christ without any kind of reference to a gendered hierarchy or anything like that. Um, so it's one of those where I think uh, I think the New Testament is very egalitarian, although it's an anachronistic term, of course. But I think the New Testament presents um, women as uh, different, but um, I would say different in the sense of women are not men, men are not women. That's the New Testament kind of seems to be suggesting over and over. Um, but because they are different, there's no hierarchy based on that difference. Differences don't equal hierarchy or kind of that sort of stuff. And so the early church was a little more mixed. I did a, a book or I did a short video and Zach probably saw it already. Um, uh, the other Zach, Zach Miller, what's your pastor and tell you, not you, Zach, uh, mm-hmm. on origins view of Phoebe as a deacon in Romans 16. It's a 10 minute. Oh, I was going to watch that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just there. a really short video. But um, one of the things origin says is basically women are to be involved in ministry. Um, he doesn't get specific about it. Um, he also affirms uh, Junia as a woman in Romans 16, 7, although the English translation uh, of his says Junius, which aggravates me because there's no no scholarly, like all, all commentators, basically no one does, no one actually believes that it's a ma- two men named in, in Romans 16, 7 that are apostles. Um, I've yet to find one that actually scholarly peer reviewed argues that anymore. That's kind of gone the way of the dodo. Um, but what you see often is when the church becomes, when the church gets removed from that, you still have semblances of egalitarianism in the church fathers. But by and large, I say the record is mixed when it comes to the early church on, say, women's ordination or women's um, function, women's uh, leadership in the church. You have instances where uh, Junia is very highly praised and all that sort of stuff. You have Phoebe being highly praised, um, but then you have, you know, other issues there. But then it's one of those where the early church fathers like us were complex. They were mm-hmm. uh, interesting. They uh, didn't always have it figured out and they had to deal with their culture as much as we had to deal with ours. And so I think the new Testament, I think can be argued is incredibly egalitarian for its time. And I would say for our time now as well. Um, whereas the early church reception of the new Testament was more mixed. Although I do think it's not nearly as sexist as some people have argued and alleged uh, same thing with Judaism, by the way, and it, it bears pointing out often uh, the early the New Testament's kind of placed as the egalitarian ideal, where uh, whereas Jews during the time were considered sexist and all this sort of stuff. That's just not true. The Jewish uh, the Old Testament contains some of the most overt stuff about women's equality and sex. You know, think Song of Songs. It's we blush and joke when we re- read it, but it's two people having a good old time, husband and wife having a great old time with no sort of domination language or anything, um, and so. Um, I think the early church was far more egalitarian than I thought, 
but not um, as egalitarian as the New Testament documents themselves. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for coming on. It's been super helpful, and I really appreciate you coming on and doing this. Any like last thoughts or things you want to say before we close shop, close up shop for the night? No, just um, again, thanks for having me on. Thanks for the really good questions. Um, I, I think if we're Christians and we are to be people of Jesus, then we need to read the literature about Jesus, meaning the Gospels, the Epistles, even the Apocalypse, which is complex and hard to understand, but that's the point. You're meant to think about what's being said, not just consume it like like empty calories. Um, so I hope uh, if anything I've said today takes root, I hope it's that uh, the New Testament is intended for transformation. And hopefully as the church, we can live in, excuse me, live into that vision. Hmm. Thank you so much, Nick, for coming on. I really appreciate you and all your hard work. And you can check out Nick's channel at New Testament Theologist. It's literally just added in that description. So you can click there if you're here via YouTube and just subscribe right now before you exit out and you better um, because I'm going to be really <laughs> sad. Nick doesn't give a heck about what you think. Um, just joking. But um, I do. You should subscribe to Nick because he's really great. And there's just such great content on there. And yeah. So thank, thank you. you so much, Nick, for coming on. really enjoyed this conversation. And yeah, thank you. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Hope you have a good one and God bless. We will see you next time. So peace out everyone. Have a good night.